Hello, microbe friends. I'm Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. I cannot wait to share this with you. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. Adrienne Kish, and she studies these crazy organisms called extremophiles. Extremophiles are organisms that live in extreme environments, and so those are all the places that we as humans cannot even imagine living. So that would be something like a super salty, salty place or boiling hot water, or the bottom of the ocean with tons of pressure. Dr. Adrienne Kish is an associate professor of microbiology at the National Museum of Natural History in Paris, France. And as an extremophile microbiologist, she studies how these organisms live in these places, these environments that we can't. And honestly, most of the time we assume that there is no life in these places, but there is. In this episode, we talk about what extremophiles are and all the different types of extremophiles, the adaptations that they have that make them able to survive in those crazy environments, and um, how we actually can use extremophiles to find life on other planets. And then you have got to make it all the way to the end again because Adrian shares an amazing, fun activity where you can actually grow extremophiles at home. So you got to check that out. All right. Well, let's head on into the interview. Please enjoy. Hi, Adrian. Thanks so much for coming on the Joyful Microbe. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much, Justine, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So you are an extremophile microbiologist. I am. So can you tell us a little bit about what an extremophile is and what it means to be an extremophile microbiologist? Yeah, absolutely. So extremophile is a term that was created just to describe microorganisms that love to live in environments that humans don't love. It is coming from words from Latin extremis and philia from the Greek for loving. So these are organisms that love extreme conditions. That can be you know, very acidic, it can be hot temperatures, it can be saturating salt and salt crystals, it can mean the bottom of the ocean at high pressure. All these environments are inhabited by what we call extremophiles. And most extremophiles are actually, the large majority, are microorganisms. So what I study is the, the microorganisms that live in some of the most extreme environments on our planet. And I try to understand how it is that they can possibly live in this environment that we as human beings can't live in. And then from there, I'll try to see if that, what that tells us about the nature of life on our planet and maybe if life could be possible on other planets. Oh, that's really cool. 
That's just so awesome. And especially the idea of discovering life on other planets. I think that's something everybody wonders about a little bit. So when you are talking about extremophiles, it's things that humans don't love. And so I guess it's extreme from a human perspective. Um, What do you think that if you could ask the microbes what they think of not in extreme conditions, like what would you kind of think about that they would be thinking about what we think of as normal? Honestly, from the point of view of extremophiles, human beings are weak. We are just... (laughs) We are so fragile. (laughs) We are superheroes compared to human beings. We are the fragile ones on the planet. We have this idea that somehow we are ruling our planet. And honestly, these microorganisms look at us and go, you know what? I was here before you. I'll be here after you. You are a passing phenomenon. So it's the, the environment, we call it extreme just because we see as extreme, but it's our human perspective. These microorganisms, for them, these environments, they can be living in pools of boiling acid. And for them, that environment is just perfect. They love it. They could not imagine living the way we do. That for them is, is horrifying. But for them, you know, boiling hot acid could be a perfect environment. So it's, it's all a matter of perspective and what your point of view is. So if you put, for example, like you're talking about boiling acid, if you put an extremophile from that condition into a normal condition, do they survive or do they say, whoa, this is extreme, <laughs> like I can't live here? Or, or are they just kind of able to live in lots of conditions, including boiling acid? That's the interesting thing with the extremophiles. There's actually two kind of subgroups. There are extremophiles that absolutely have to have these extreme conditions. A really great example of this are some of the microorganisms that live in the bottom of the ocean. They love high pressure. All of that water above them creates this really high pressure environment. We call these organisms either barophiles or piezophiles, two words that mean the same thing, means they love high pressure. These organisms are so used to living under high pressure that when they send down submarines down to collect samples and bring them up to atmospheric pressure, the cells actually explode. They can't withstand the normal atmospheric pressure. They're true extremophiles. Yeah, Beside that, you've got organisms that are able to survive under really extreme conditions, but they don't have to. And an interesting example of this is actually the organism that most people associate with the word extremophile. It's Deinococcus radiodurans. Deinococcus is well known because it is able to survive high levels of radiation. In fact, the the history of that is that it was originally isolated from a can of spam of meat that was <laughs> sterilized by x-rays. And then the meat went bad. It spoiled. And people were like, how yeah. is this possible? It was sterilized with x-rays. How is it possible that we have spoiled meat inside? Boom, discovery of Deinococcus. But Deinococcus, its normal habitat isn't spam. I mean, that's not where it comes from. It comes from someplace else. And actually, when we grow it in labs under its normal conditions, it doesn't grow under extreme conditions normally, but it can survive extreme conditions. So these are organisms that we can study. We call them extreme 
tolerant organisms. And so they can be under extreme conditions, but they don't have to. They could be under normal conditions too. Wow. I have so many questions about that, but um, <laughs> that's so interesting. What a really good example. Um, that's so crazy. I think that just thinking about extremophiles is fascinating and that there are ones that can actually survive x-rays. I actually worked at a medical supply manufacturer where um, they used radiation to sterilize the products. And um, so it's kind of creepy to think about that there are some organisms that maybe could slip in there and survive. <laughs> but that's why we had the job that we had as microbiologists, um, because we were testing for some things that could grow after the um, radiation and make sure that there was nothing there in the batches that would go out to the hospitals and things that ordered the um, syringes and needles that we were working with. <laughs> This is really one of those ways that people without even realizing it interact with extremophiles in our day-to-day -day lives, whether it's food or medical supplies. We use extremophiles now to test these protocols, just like you're describing in labs for how to sterilize things, whether it's equipment, medical equipment, or food. We have to make sure that the organisms aren't going to survive that it's not going to impact the quality of either the food or the instrument. And that if anything survives, it isn't going to make people sick. It's not a pathogen. Mm -hmm. So for that, we have to kind of understand what organisms are extremophiles that can survive whatever it is that we're trying to kill them with, in this case, x-rays. Um, and if they can survive, uh, does that pose a danger to us? And that's also something that they use, I mean, We've just seen this wonderful example of a rover that's touched down on Mars that's going to go look for signs of ancient life on Mars. And any time that a rover gets sent to another planet like this, they have to go through a step called planetary protection. They have to sterilize the spacecraft and try to remove organisms that were not sending microorganisms to another planet. So this is questions they have to ask, the same questions. Are there organisms that could survive? However, we're cleaning the spacecraft before we send it to another planet. And so it, it all kind of comes back to this question of what can organisms survive? What's too much? And we to measure that, we use extremophiles. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And the Mars rover, that was such an exciting thing that just happened. Um, I guess, can you tell us a little bit more about that? And did any of the work that you've done or um, or have you been involved in that or anything? Um, or in the past, have you done anything that was involved with that type of work? I, I have not been fortunate enough yet to, to be working on a Mars mission uh, directly. That's, that's not been my work. What I have, uh, I was fortunate enough when I started my career, one of the very first things I did was an internship right out of my undergrad degree. I was fortunate enough to be selected for an internship at NASA. And so I started uh, there working on the system that they use to recycle uh, all of the liquid waste uh, that's what's on Space Shuttle and now Space Station called a bioregenerative life support system. So you use microbes to recycle everything that is uh, waste material, um, waste wow. food. And so I started there. And then, of course, then you start talking to the researchers and seeing what everybody else is working on. And then there was the people that were looking at looking for signs of life on Mars. 
and preparing for human habitation on Mars. How could you grow plants on Mars in these extreme conditions? And, and if there was life on Mars, you know, how would we detect it? So I slowly found my way into that community and I just fell in love. I, I, I just couldn't imagine how do we find, how could life survive on this sort of a planet? And so now what I do is in my lab, the only sample of life that we have is on our planet. We don't have any other life known on any other world. So all we have is what we have here on Earth. And so extremophiles give us this window into what's possible. We get to look at life through a whole different optic. We get to see how life can push the boundaries of what we think is possible. Because these organisms are living someplace where as human beings, we go, no, it's not possible. It can't be done. We would hate living there. And yet these organisms are totally happy. So what I do now is I try to figure out how life can live there, what kind of molecules they need to use as sort of building blocks like Lego bricks to put together an organism that's going to survive. And if any of these bricks are going to survive over time as fossils, and that's what this Mars rover now is looking at. They're going to look at trying to find fossils of life, of microbial life on Mars to see if there was life in the past on Mars, because the conditions now are likely too extreme, at least at the surface of the planet there might be possibility of, of some life if that ever uh, arose on Mars on the subsurface. But at the surface, likely not uh, the case today, but it might have been in the past when there was still water. So what they're going to do is they're going to look for these molecular fossils. And so a lot of people, myself included, have done work looking at how do extremophiles go through this process of turning into fossils? And what does that look like? And how would we be able to detect it, either with a rover or hopefully now with Mars sample return possible because of the, the samples that are going to be start to be collected by Perseverance during that mission. When we get samples back, how would we look for that with all the equipment that we have in a lab that's way bigger than what you can put on a rover? Could we find fossils of life and of these extremophiles? And how do we be sure that we've actually, if, if we were ever so lucky to find this, how could we be sure that it is actually a fossil of life and not just something that would form from geology that has nothing to do with the presence of life? Because if you were ever going to say, we think we found life on Mars, you want to be sure. And that's a, mm. it's a very tricky question. The bar set really high to have a proof of that. And we still debate this on Earth, looking at fossils of life on Earth and, and the earliest forms of life. We're still debating this stuff for terrestrial samples where we know there is life. So it's even harder to find it on a planet where we're not sure there ever was life. So we, we, we put the standard, yeah. the bar is set really high. So we work really hard looking at the life that we know. And then we use that as a standard to try to compare it to whatever we're going to find on Mars. If we did find fossils of um, microbes there, would would it be only visible with a microscope, or what do you think would it look like? Would you be able, like a person, or the, I guess the rover, if you're looking around with the rover, would would it be kind of would there be signs or any sort of like cues that you can look for that would indicate maybe there's microbial or microbial fossils? Well, it depends uh, on what kind of organism, because some microorganisms, like cyanobacteria, they make very large fossils, call them stromatolites. 
These are very big and we can see them all over. You can see them in, in lakes in California. You can see them in, in Australia. They're huge, big structures that we can see. And that's, they're easily identifiable in the fossil record when we know what we're looking for. And when we have geologists that can go out to the field and use all of their tools. Anything you do with a Mars rover is going to be inherently more difficult. And, and I don't work directly with the Mars rover. I, I, I have just had the good fortune at one point to do a, a simulation with a, a team that's working on a Mars rover to get an idea of how difficult it is to identify a stromatolite with the Mars rover and watching these mm. world experts trying to identify it. It's, it's actually so harder. Cool. It's harder than it seems to actually yeah, identify. So there are these big structures. There's also really tiny structures. And that's uh, a lot of what I work on now is the, is the smaller structures. So we can get um, organisms that came out of places like that resemble Yellowstone where you have an environment that's got, um, it's a volcanic environment, it's high temperature, there's a lot of metals uh, that come out of these kind of environments, and that will actually mineralize the surface of different bacteria, archaea, the microorganisms, and that will fossilize their cell surface. And that's what we can identify, but they're so small. Even with a microscope, they're so small to see. So Mm -hmm. we're working very hard to try to figure out how do we, be able to how are we able to identify those clearly the other thing mm-hmm. that i'm working on as a fossil of life is actually salt crystals which sounds a little counterintuitive but inside salt crystals you'll often see these things pink rock salt this pink color that you can even say you can see it from you know these salt lamps that you can buy these pink himalayan salt lamps or you can uh, <laughs> yeah i've see seen it, those yeah, you've seen those. Um, I have one at home myself. And they're pretty. <laughs> oh, they're gorgeous. And, and the light they have is just so relaxed. It's just, it's a nice, calm, diffuse light. And you can use, even use it in the kitchen. A lot of people use Himalayan rock salt, that pink salt in their grinders in the kitchen. There's actually two reasons why salt can be pink. Either it's got a lot of iron in it, which is good, or it can also have archaea inside And these little cells, these halophiles, these salt-loving organisms can survive alive inside tiny droplets of water on the inside of these salt crystals. Those cells are pink. So they can actually turn the salt pink and they're inside and they can stay alive for a very long time. I say very long because there's still debate about how long, but there's been dating, you know, up to thousands of years or even longer, that shows that they're still alive. So you can actually have these sort of living fossils of life, of microbial life inside, preserved inside of a salt crystal for these long wow. periods of time. So what makes them pink? What makes the archaea cell pink? It's actually their pigments they use at the surface. So they have some pigments that are used as sunscreen, essentially. They help protect against UV rays, just the way we put sunscreen on. And they have some pigments that are used to make energy. So it's a little different than photosynthesis in plants because you're not fixing carbon, but you are making energy this way. And so they have these pigments that help them make energy. And those are the the pigments that give them this, you know, the pink color. But most of the the red color comes from um, a a basically a UV protection, a, a sunscreen. And that also helps them become more resistant to radiation like UV rays. And so they can survive long times inside these salt crystals. That is so cool. (laughs) So is it possible that we could buy 
pink Himalayan salt and there would be archaea or is that from something else? Is it just kind of could be either iron or archaea or? It um, could be either or. It could be either iron or the presence of archaea. But this is actually something um, and and we could talk about this more later. But now during COVID and we've been a year now of uh, living a lot indoors and, and living at home and working at home. And so for me as a microbiologist, I start to get twitchy missing my lab. Mm-hmm. Being but halophiles, I started actually being able to culture uh, some of these halophiles and grow them in my kitchen from pink rock salt wow. that I bought at the store. And I that's something, that. yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's the things that we start doing. And just with things that I bought at, you know, the, at the supermarket, I was able to grow these halophiles and there they were. And under a microscope, no I way. can see, yes, I can <laughs> see this microorganism. You can grow them at home and it's perfectly safe because these halophilic archaea aren't dangerous to, to humans. They can't infect us. There's nothing dangerous. I mean, just like it says on the Hitchhiker Guide to the Galaxy, don't panic. There's nothing dangerous <laughs> here. <laughs> I uh, love that. I know that people, when they hear, oh, there could be something living inside my salt that I'm eating, this could cause the concern. But, oh, no, nothing dangerous. It's all good. And you can actually grow these in your own kitchen during COVID lockdown and see the living world just, you know, from food. Okay. That is so cool. I love that. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. <laughs> that is so fun. I, oh wow. Okay. We're going to have to talk about that more. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay. So I saw something that caught my eye that you gave a talk a while back and I just loved the title. So I wanted to know a little bit more about the talk. It was called Hot, Salty, and Bitter. Is the recipe is this the recipe for extreme life? <laughs> um <laughs> or is the recipe for extreme life? So tell me a little bit more about that and what you talked about at that um uh, the what was it a um symposium maybe? Yeah, it's the 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 wonderful thing about what I study is that the the kind of science that I do is I don't look just at one extreme organism. I look at a whole bunch of different extreme organisms. So, you know, like I said, things that grow in boiling, you know, acid pools and other ones that grow in the high salt and radiation resistant organisms and organisms that love large concentrations of metals. And I study them all. And what I try to do is figure out actually what do they have in common? What's similar between these environments? Extremophiles, they have hidden talents. I mean, radiation resistance makes no sense on our planet. Our planet has this wonderful protection against um, ionizing radiation. Our ozone layer, when it doesn't have holes in it, is a wonderful shield against UV. So having these radiation resistant organisms is almost counterintuitive just by pure evolution. But when we start digging down to the molecular level and we start realizing that the cells are starting to see the the damage that these different environments can inflict on cells is actually the same at a really basic level between different stresses that seem completely different. And a classic example of this is actually being completely dried out or radiation or high salt can it make the same kind of damage inside of a cell. And so this is sort of the thing that I've been looking at is what is in common between all these environments? Why are organisms able to survive under different extremes? And what does that tell us about the the origins of life on our planet 
and the potential for life someplace else if all it takes is is not having a whole cell that a whole living organism that can resist different conditions but just having a cell membrane that can survive having you know a nucleic acid whether it's dna or rna that can withstand the different kinds of stresses having proteins that can survive these different stresses so in that way instead of looking at the whole organism I, you have to imagine right now we buy computers, right? And the computers we buy now, they're gorgeous. They work great, but you can't really take them apart. We just know that they work. When they stop working, we don't really know a lot of times what happened. And so if you want to know more, you have to strip it down to its component parts. That's when you buy like a kit for a Raspberry Pi. And you buy one of these home kits to build a computer from a Raspberry Pi system. And you build it piece by piece and you see how it works and you put it into different configurations. That's sort of what we do with extremophiles. We strip them down to their component parts. We test each part one at a time. We try to see how it works in different environments. And then we see, okay, so you put it all together. This is how an extremophile works. And you see that it's actually, in the end, pretty similar to how non-extreme life works with some just a couple of key differences. And, and that's, that's what we're learning about extremophiles. Wow, that's so fascinating. Um, so when you're talking about cells, are you talking about both bacteria and archaea? Yeah, indeed. Uh, most When we talk about extremophiles, we can get extremophiles, we classify things in our, our green, grand three domains of life. So for people who aren't familiar with this, we classify life into the eukarya, so things that have a, a nucleus, and this can be plants, animals, us, even a couple of extremophiles, some fungi, and the tardigrades, the beautiful tardigrades, the little tiny water <laughs> bears that can survive under all these different extreme conditions. When we have our bacteria, most people are kind of familiar with bacteria. Archaea are something that's relatively new into common knowledge. So I don't know, for parents that are currently helping their children with their schoolwork and COVID and, and doing school from home, maybe seeing this term archaea and going, oh, no, I did not take this in school. What is this? So yeah. quick guide, what this yeah. means is it looks like a bacteria. And in fact, up till the 1970s, they thought they were bacteria because they look exactly the same. It's only when you strip them down to the molecular level, the way I was describing, we started to figure out that all their machinery on the inside, their proteins, how they replicate their DNA, how they do all of these things to repair their DNA, that all comes from eukaryotes, from us. And archaea are sort of, they have component machinery, a lot of it from eukaryotes, packaged into cells that look like bacteria. And as we get into more extreme environments, the general tendency for diversity in these environments, we tend to have less diversity, generally speaking, in most extreme environments, and we tend to have more and more archaea. And so extremophiles, generally, there tends to be more archaea than bacteria or eukaryotes in extreme environments. And that's actually how the first archaea were identified, because they were sampled in Yellowstone. And so that's where they started finding these extreme forms of life. And at the beginning, the two were synonymous. Extremophile, archaea, it's the same thing. Mm. And now we know that's not true. There are archaea that aren't extreme. It's just that when you get into extreme environments, it's mostly archaea that you're going to find as a general rule. Yeah, okay. That was something I wanted to talk about was how they are kind of like famous for being extremophiles, but that they 
are not all extremophiles. So, um, so yeah. it was, were they associated as that just simply because they were originally discovered that way? And when did they start finding them in normal places? Actually, it was a really long time that um, the, the two ideas of archaea and extremophile were just synonymous. And that was because Carl Wolves from the University of Illinois was the first to identify the, um, uh, the archaea. And he proposed this in the 1970s, and this made it just a total revolution in microbiology, this idea that there was this whole other group of organisms that nobody realized were distinct. And he had done all this work, but he was sampling from a lot of extreme environments. And so he identified them first uh, because in extreme environments, you're going to have more of these archaea. And it was only when they started doing sequencing. And at that point, it was sequencing, you know, by hand, old school with these very, now we do it all, you know, it's very automated. We have machines to do sequencing now. And at the time, that was all done by these huge gels that they were running by hand and taking, you know, film with actual film holding in their hand to actually uh, compare and by hand aligning the different sequences to try to figure out that, oh, my goodness, there's these things that look like bacteria that aren't bacteria. Flash forward to the discovery of what we call tomarchia. So these are archaea that are not extreme. And we can find them in dirt, just in the park. You can find them in lake water. You can find them just about everywhere uh, in different environments. They're, they're really uh, found in a lot of different environments. But the Tomarkia discovery was very late. And so when you're looking in, especially with the advancement of gene sequencing, then we were able to identify a lot of things that simply couldn't be done before. So right now you have to understand microbiology is in a revolution. We're discovering so much. When I teach classes at the university level on diversity in microbiology, every year I'm basically having to redo my class because there's so much information coming out that teaches us more about extreme environments, not extreme environments. They're finding archaea everywhere. Extreme environments, non-extreme environments. Archaea had now been identified in our bodies, which is a really interesting thought because our bodies, in fact, are not extreme environments. We don't have extremophiles. And that sounds a little strange because we have things like our stomach that's very acidic. And we think, oh my goodness, that would be an environment for extremophiles. And while we do have microorganisms like in our stomachs, they're not actually acid-loving organisms. They do a trick they create a sort of bubble around themselves of a neutral pH environment. So while they're surviving inside stomach acid, an acidic environment, they're not actually exposed directly to the acid. They protect themselves. So, for example, the bacteria that causes uh, that can cause stomach ulcers, uh, Helicobacter pylori, is not actually an extremophile because it protects itself from the stomach acid that way. So the archaea that we find in our bodies are actually non-extremophiles. Wow. That is crazy. I hadn't really thought about that, (laughs) that they're not actually extremophiles. So um, though you were talking about sequencing, and so that's a way to identify the, um, you can identify bacteria and archaea that way, but what are they are archaea difficult to actually cultivate because like historically before we had sequencing you know and of course we still do this now but originally we would cultivate them on some 
petri dishes to grow them. So, um, and then we have missed a lot of the organisms that are out there. So is that true for our kia? Is that why we've ha- it took a while to actually discover them? Oh, massively. That's it's exactly right. There's the the amount of organisms that we can culture uh, is so small compared to the grand diversity that we have in the in the environments. And to culture extremophiles in the lab, you come across problems that you wouldn't imagine for something like E. coli. It's a whole other world because of the conditions that we have to recreate in the lab. So, for example, if you're studying hyperthermophiles, organisms that live in the highest temperatures, so you're above 80 degrees Celsius, these boiling temperatures, trying to do what you would normally do and make a Petri dish with agar-based uh, growth medium on it, it's not possible because it'll simply melt. And so yeah. <laughs> it's a real challenge. <laughs> there's a, one certain type of uh, a replacement for agar that you can use to do Petri plates, but generally it doesn't work. It's mostly liquid cultures that work better for a lot of these organisms. Mm-hmm. So there's challenges like this that are really unique to extremophiles. So that's where you have to do a lot of sequence-based. And that's where the tendency is um, for people that are working on trying to identify the diversity in the environment is unit by uh, non-cultivation-based methods and doing it now through metagenome sequencing and getting to know all of the different um, genes that are held in an organism without ever culturing it. And we're learning so much more. And now there is a push within the microbial community to validate a whole new way to classify life and characterize organisms and give them names, you know, genus and species names without ever having grown them in a lab because we're learning so much about them through these sequencing methods. So like I said, I love being a microbiologist right now because we're in this explosion in the field that we're learning new stuff just all the time. So I, it's a great time to be a microbiologist. That's so exciting. That's really, really cool. I kind of want to go back to, and I know this is um, a little bit specific, but just talking about the growing them in the lab, because um, we talked about Petri dishes, and then you mentioned yeah. liquid. And um, I guess, is it that with liquid, you would have a mixture possibly of organisms? And so like when you put organisms on a Petri dish, you can isolate single species. Um, and then, or do you think possibly certain organism would just outgrow everybody else in the in the mixture that originally was there and so um yeah I kind of want to hear your thoughts on that it's one of the big challenges in cultivation it's trying to get pure cultures and exactly like you said when we're growing them on petri plates the great advantage of growing them on petri dishes is that we can see each individual colony which is essentially a clone of from one single cell and so you can separate them all out based on things like color or the way they look, the different uh, uh, morphologies of each different colony. We can see sort of differences and we can actually pick out, okay, so that organism will be different from that one. And then from there, you can make a pure culture. When you can't go through a Petri plate process, it changes everything. It becomes much harder to separate out organisms. And a lot of extremophiles that we're just starting to understand in culturing, it's because they're actually dependent on some sort of symbiosis with another organism. And so you can't ever get them 100% pure because they need their community to actually grow. So you can never get them entirely pure, which makes working with them 
very difficult in the lab. And we can learn a lot through doing sequencing and, and their learning about their DNA, their expression of genes as RNA or as protein. But a lot of experiments to really understand how an organism works, we've got to be able to culture them. And so that's where we get a blockage. So what, a good example of this was published uh, about a year ago. Now, there's a whole new group of, well, relatively recently identified group of archaea, call them the Asgard archaea. So it's all the mythology from Thor. Mm-hmm. We have the Loki archaea, the, the Thor archaea. It's, it's all the naming from that universe, which I love. <laughs> Microbiologist with a sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a group in Japan that was able to recently isolate the very first of these Asgard archaea in culture. It took them 12 years of continuous culture to slowly but surely just change the growth medium a little bit, change the conditions and try to isolate the organism. 12 years, one project, it took them 12 years. So when people wonder why it is that we end up wanting tenure positions, this is why. Because otherwise you're <laughs> never going to get funding to do a project for 12 years to isolate an organism. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So did they just keep growing it um, or did they have to put re-inoculate it so that it wouldn't mutate and adapt to the conditions? It was a long process of using a batch reactor. Uh, so they're growing it continuously and then trying to remove all of the other food sources from other organisms so they could remove all the organisms that ate anything other than the one organism they were chasing down, things like that. There was many, many steps to finally get to only having one organism. But it took, I mean, all of that took 12 years because a lot of these organisms grow really slow because they're in environments where they don't have a lot of nutrients. And so they're really used to just taking their time. It's the tortoise and the hare. They're just taking their time. They're going to get there, (laughs) you know? But they grow really slowly. So when you compare that to something like E. coli, where every 20 minutes the cells are dividing, you have new cells all the time, and you've got some of these cultures, some of the archaea, where you're talking about weeks for a cell division. And Mm. it's just so slow because these organisms know there's no point in rushing. There's not going to be enough, you know, nutrients. Their whole life cycle is adapted to this really slow turn of events. So, yeah, it's it's a long process. There's a lot of patience. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm sure working in that field would be you would have to be very patient. (laughs) That's that's crazy. And creative because there's no. off the shelf equipment that exists for this. So you're basically, you have to make up a lot of what you need on the fly and you have to, a lot of the kits that you use for E. coli, you can't use. And so everything has to be done from scratch. And a lot of equipment's been handmade in these labs to actually grow these organisms. So it's a science for very creative people. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I think it's so cool to think about certain organisms having to have another organism in order to survive. And um, it's something that I thought about when I was doing my research um, during my PhD. But I just think it's fascinating to think about 
the different nutrients that they require and that they can be provided by another organism. And it's really hard to figure that out if you don't know that ahead of time. Why is it that this one needs that one? <laughs> exactly. I mean, life is so much more intertwined and it's, it mm-hmm. shouldn't be surprising to us that, you know, there's a lot of organisms that just, they need to be together in a community. They have to have it. They've all worked together. I mean, a great example of that that is a little bit easier for people to imagine sometimes is the roots of plants. There's such an amazing ecosystem of all these different organisms. I mean, you've got fungi. I mean, you've got small animals. You've got bacteria. You've got archaea. And they're all working together with the plants to get the nutrients they need, to give the nutrients to other organisms. It's this whole cycle. And it's just like that in extreme environments as well. You've, you've got this churn that happens. Um, it's a, it's a much less diversity in a lot of cases. Not always, but it's, it's often with much less diversity and a lot less nutrients. And it's slow because of that. But there is this the sharing that happens between organisms. So it's amazing that we ever mm-hmm. arrive at actually getting to culture organisms isolated by themselves at all. That's already a huge thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're just like independent organisms. Like, I don't need you. <laughs> just give me my food. I'm fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so as an extremophile microbiologist, you study these different adaptations that these organisms have um, that can kind of make it so that they're able to survive. So in pretty simple terms, like what are some of these adaptations that these organisms have that make it so that just a few examples of things that make it that they can survive in those environments? Yeah. When you were talking about things like surviving radiation, that's a very odd thing. Cause like I mentioned, this is not something that we find a lot on the surface of our planet is high radiation. So we start to figure out that one of the key things is being able to repair their DNA. They've got to have these great systems to repair their DNA. And so at the origin of studies on things like Dinococcus radiodurans, these really radiation resistant organisms, they thought that they would find these you know, silver bullet, amazing enzymes that would be totally different from what you'd find at somebody like E. coli. And when they started going through the genome, they couldn't find these sort of miraculous silver bullet proteins that didn't exist elsewhere. And the end conclusion was that, honestly, the systems were the same to repair the DNA, basically the same from non-extremophile organisms and extremophiles. It's just that extremophiles, they were highly tuned and efficient. I mean, the, the example that I like to use, it's the difference between a smart car and a Ferrari. They're both cars, but let's be clear, one of them works a lot better than the other. <laughs> and that's what we're looking at, is, is the sort of difference. One of the interesting things is the way that geology gets integrated into biology. And we tend to see them as different things. We have a rock and we have a living thing. They're not the same. But when we look at the evolution of life on our planet, they're actually really integrated that the, the biology and geology are somehow mixed. We need certain metals and certain elements inside all living cells. And so extremophiles, like the radiation-resistant organisms, they were able to identify that they had high concentrations of things like manganese inside their cells and really low amounts of iron And they had adapted the concentration of ions inside their cells. They changed it. They had sucked out of their environment all of the ions they needed and figured out that if they had changed out the ratio, had more manganese, less iron, they were suddenly 
radiation resistant. So I'm saying it like it was a thought out process, but with microorganisms, they didn't exactly decide. It just happened that way. And then it worked. And then evolution kept using it because it worked. But radiation resistant organisms have different elements and they have different ions inside their cells than non-radiation resistant. So this isn't actually anything, um, an active system, a repair. It's just they're protected from radiation damage by integrating what's essentially geology inside their cells. And that helps to protect their cells. So it's these sort of basic mechanisms. Mm. This is what helps cells survive. Another great one that's used in a lot of organisms is the production of different kinds of sugars, Um, trailers, or glycerol. These are different components that are great because they can be recycled in a lot of ways. If the cell it doesn't have a lot of nutrients, they can use that as a carbon source. If they're environments where they're stressed, they can use that to combat stress, whether it's high pressure or uh, salt stress. It's all these sugars they're producing anyway. So they recycle a lot of different mechanisms that could be used either as food or as protection against extreme environments, and they use it as necessary. So this is... There are ways like that for organisms to survive. Halophiles do a really neat trick to recycle nutrients. They can eat DNA. (laughs) (laughs) They have, that's a great trick. They have DNA outside (laughs) the cells and they have multiple copies of their DNA inside their cells. And then they have DNA outside their cells. And when they don't have enough phosphorus, because DNA is chock full of phosphorus, they can just eat DNA and then they can get phosphorus. What an amazing thought that you could actually eat DNA, but that, could happen. So it's a lot of these ways (laughs) that are just recycling processes and making it far more efficient, making it the Ferrari version of a cell. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. The weird to think about the way that they repurpose things. It's (laughs) just incredible. Um, Okay. So overall, in your years of being a microbiologist, what have you learned about how like your work specifically kind of applies to microbes in our day to day? It really uh, has challenged um, a lot of what I assume about life. The great thing about working with extreme files is that you have to, at every step, challenge your assumptions, challenge what you are, uh, your biases and figure out what you're assuming about life, what's possible, what isn't possible. You have to scrap everything and go back to the very basics and you can't just assume something's correct. So that's, it's one of the greatest lessons I've learned for that for science and for life is to really challenge your assumptions and to reimagine what's possible. And that's what I get to see every day working with extremophiles, that our vision of what is possible is very small compared to what Mm. actually is possible. And I guess the second lesson I've learned from extremophiles is I I hadn't thought about extreme environments until I started looking at astrobiology and look at the possibility of life on other planets. But as soon as I got keyed in to this idea of extreme environments, I thought, okay, well, where are they on Earth? Where can we find these sort of environments that would be analogs for life on other planets? You start to think of things as exotic locations in the Arctic and in the high mountains. And and they are. (laughs) Those are amazing locations. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to travel to some of these places to do sampling. And they're incredible. If you get the opportunity, you have to jump because they're amazing. But then I started seeing extreme environments around me. So growing up in North America, we take long car trips. And you start driving by and you look out your window and you'll see, you know, 
these little piles of salt beside when you're traveling through in places like in the middle of Saskatchewan, in the middle of the Great Plains. And those are salt, uh, the, the salt evaporation sites or in Great Salt Lake in Utah. You drive through the desert, mm. you see these little colors in the rocks, a little green color in the rocks for cyanobacteria that can live even in completely dried out conditions. <laughs> you go on vacation and you're sitting in hot springs, just, I mean, blissed out in a hot spring, enjoying <laughs> it. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait, I can see again, little bits of green or little, you know, it's, it could walk, the rock could be a little slimy. You think, oh my goodness, there's something that can live inside this. Mm-hmm. You start realizing that that external files are actually around us in a lot of places that we wouldn't imagine that they are. And so when you go out the next time that we're allowed to to go traveling again in a post-COVID world, so just look at these places and look at the colors, uh, just the subtle colors in places that you wouldn't expect life to be. Anywhere that you think, oh, there's no way, there's nothing here. It's completely <laughs> devoid of life. And yet there's going to be some life somewhere. So that's, mm. it's, it's, a, that. it's a beautiful way to look at the world. And, and just there's life in the most surprising places. That is so awesome to think about it that way. I love that. It's really beautiful. Um, okay. So those are a lot of examples of like things outside. Are there any examples of where we could see extremophiles in our houses <laughs> besides like if you have the pink Himalayan salt? <laughs> I'm I'm hoping that you don't have many extreme files in your house because then I've got to wonder about <laughs> what your house looks like. <laughs> yeah, generally, I mean, in our homes, luckily, we don't have a lot of extreme environments. Like I said, I mean, even in our bodies, the, the organisms that live there protect themselves from the extreme conditions. Um, so they're mostly outside environments. So at the moment, um, we mostly see it on, you know, documentaries, and we're seeing this on streaming at the moment more than in real life. But it's mostly outside that we see extremophiles if you're not, if you don't have your own salt lamp at home. <laughs> yeah, would. Okay, so if we, I guess it's not something we can necessarily see. But what about like in the hot water heater? It, are those examples of extra like non-extremophile extremophiles like are they protecting themselves or is that considered an extremophile now I'm forgetting how you defined that but um the ones that have protection but exist or can live in harsh environments are those considered extremophiles and then would that be the case with the hot water heater so okay so we'll start with the first question with uh, how we classify extremophiles so extremophiles they're either they have to have the extreme environment and so those are our true extremophiles and then we have extremotolerant organisms that can survive direct contact with extreme environments but they don't have to be in an extreme environment either they're sort of an either or the third category then is the organisms that are found in an extreme environment. So if we think of our stomach with the Helicobacter pylori, they're in our stomach, but they're not actually exposed directly to the acid. They protect themselves from the acid itself. And so those are non-extremophiles because they're not in direct contact. If you think of a hot water heater, so um, it's mostly inside of a hot water heater. If it's inside, it would be just exposed. If we assume that it's exposed directly to the heat, it would have to be either a thermophile or thermotolerant organism it has to either tolerate it or need it. If it needs the hot, the heat, it means that your hot water heater would have to be hot all the time. It could never go. The temperatures wouldn't, couldn't go below uh, about 60 degrees Celsius. So sorry, as a scientist, I think in Celsius uh, for your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so like we, I do too a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I. Uh, yeah, so it'd have to be hot all the time, or it'd have to be an mm-hmm. organism that could tolerate going to high, higher temperatures. So, like I said, thankfully in our homes, we you know we don't have a lot of um, uh, extreme fuzz, except for we could have extreme tolerant organisms that can okay. withstand um, a lot of these extreme environments, but don't absolutely have to have them all the time. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um... Okay. So that was all really amazing. Um, are, are there any projects or anything coming up that you're really excited about that you're working on? Oh, man. So that's a hard question because I love all of the stuff I do. I'm a, I'm a scientist by passion. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I love everything that I'm working on. I guess one of the things that I am I'm most uh, excited about right now because it's just it's a childhood dream is I am participating in a, in a spaceflight uh, mission um, that will eventually, uh, fingers crossed, make its way to the International Space Station. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm really excited. And what we're going to be looking at is this whole idea of extremophiles. And, and first of all, beyond spiralists, but some amazing studies have been done already on survival inside space conditions. And what we're going to look at instead is starting the idea that we talked about before about uh, biosignatures. Uh, on their planets and looking at specifically um, the the surface of microorganisms, halophiles, and can they survive uh, over long-term exposure to the conditions that we have in space. And that'll help be one of the markers that will help us identify if we ever could find life in salt um, on other planets. Could we identify certain parts of uh, their cell surface as signatures of life? And there's a lot of great researchers that are working on different parts of of this question, whether they're looking at pigments or they're looking at lipids. We're looking specifically at parts of their cell wall. And a lot of people are working on this question, different aspects to try to figure out if we ever could find life, would people identify whether it's you know, life on, on Earth, the first traces of life uh, on Earth, early life, or whether it's trying to find life, uh, identify life on another planet. How can we be certain that what we found had its origins in, uh, in uh, biology? So working on this project on the space station is sort of the culmination of childhood dreams. I mean, who wouldn't want to work yeah. on this? <laughs> that is so exciting. <laughs> Very excited. Um, yeah, definitely. My brother actually got to work on the space shuttle, and I just remember that was like a childhood dream fulfilled for him. <laughs> so, oh my goodness, I can yeah. relate in some ways. It was, you know, when I when I first started out, like as I I was so fortunate to have this internship at NASA when I had just just graduated, and watching all those launches and seeing other people's experiments go up and come back down, mm-hmm. and the excitement and stress on their faces as they're going through the launch process. <laughs> It was just so incredible to see. So being able to to participate in this is, you know, it's a dream come true. Um, and hopefully we can help to contribute along with a lot of these amazing scientists around the world that are working on this question to help us to identify what it looks like to have a microorganism in a fossil record and survival under things like radiation, what that does to the signs of life. And just to participate in that, in this whole conversation um, about biosignatures is, is an amazing opportunity. And you know, it's, it's amazing now as a senior researcher to be able to bring on students to work on this and get to see that excitement in their faces as well. And, and we have the same excitement, <laughs> them and me, we're That's both so sharing cool. the excitement. So it's like I said, it's, it's, a, it's a science that we do by passion because we're fascinated by the weirdest kinds of life. So I'm very fortunate. That is so cool. How exciting. 
All right. So now we're going to move on to a question that I will be asking people and um, have asked people that have come on the podcast about. And so what at-home microbiology activity can you tell my audience about so they can experience the microbial world in a hands-on way? Yeah, so this comes back to what I was, uh, I was mentioning this a little bit earlier, this idea of being able to culture halophiles in your kitchen. So COVID-friendly activity. It's all very, <laughs> the great thing, like I said, it's not pathogens. There's nothing dangerous inside halophiles. Um, and it's something you can do, you know, even with, with kids, this is a safe thing to do. So if you're going to find it, like I said, you get the Himalayan pink rock salt. That it could either just be because it's got a lot of iron in it, or you could have halophiles. To find out if you've got halophiles inside, what you got to do is start with making some beef broth, and you have to make sure that the beef broth doesn't have any preservatives in it because that'll actually kill any microorganisms that you're trying to grow. So you want to try to find it from a, a natural food store and make that in distilled water. So the reason for that is you want to make sure you get the pH right. So it's basically the same kind of water that you'd use in your clothing iron. Uh, and make and make your beef broth. Inside your beef broth, you want to add in a bit of sugar, just a pinch of sugar, and then you're going to saturate it with your pink rock salt. So basically what you do is you add the pink rock salt until you can't add any more where you see chunks of salt that stay on the bottom that never really dissolve. You keep stirring it until you can't add any more. And then you can put that, you just add a little bit of water on the top, Put it into a closed jar with a little bit of airspace at the top and stick it into a window if possible or just on the countertop. And within a couple of weeks, you're going to start to see that it's going to get a little turbid. You're going to see that it's no longer, you can't see straight through it anymore. And that means you have your microbes that are inside and you have grown halophiles right from salt. And again, this isn't, they're not pathogens, so it's there. For people that are interested to go a step further, you can go to essentially a toy store or just a children's, uh, any sort of science supplies. And sometimes they have it at science centers, these little uh, kit, uh, lab kits, just a child's ca- uh, lab kit. And if it has a little centrifuge on the inside, I bought one from my local store uh, that had just a tiny little centrifuge, a, a child's centrifuge. You can actually just uh, put it into the centrifuge, put it into a little tube that are included in the little kit, spin them down. I've done this all with children's equipment at home. Use a little bit of 95% ethanol. And I think right now with COVID, we can all purchase this at our pharmacies because we've been using it to sterilize things in our Mm -hmm. homes. Freeze it in your freezer. Make sure it's ice cold. And so in your little tube that you have, your your cells that you've, you've spun down, add about twice as much ethanol as you have water on the inside and just drip it down a little bit of time on the side and eventually you're going to form a layer where you, you don't want to mix two layers to mix and you're going to see the top part that is the ethanol bottom part with the water and right at the where the two layers touch you're going to see a little white layer that forms and if you happen to have a glass stir stick just a little stir stick spool it around inside that layer when you start <laughs> to see it and you'll pull out the dna inside these cells and the reason that happens is because halophile cells are specialists at living in high salt. And the way they do this is that they have the same amount of salt outside their cells as inside the cells. They have this huge amount of, of salt inside their cell. So you put them in water, they actually explode. 
<laughs> and inside they've got all these copies of their DNA. They survive mm-hmm. because they have up to 20 copies of their DNA inside their cells. They've got a ton of DNA. So that's why you can get so much DNA. You can actually pull it out with a glass stir stick. You can pull on it and actually see the silvery thread of DNA that comes out at the end. Wow. That would be really cool for people to see DNA in real life, I think. <laughs> that is super exciting. Um, okay. So I want to go back to where you said the word turbid. Um, for people who don't know that word, I know you said where you can't see through it, so it's going to look cloudy. Um, what is an example of something maybe in like normal life that people could kind of compare that to? Okay. So uh, the difference there would be something like you can get apple juice. You can have the apple juice that is uh, the kind of apple juice that is completely clear. You can't see it through. Or you can get the pressed apple juice where it's pressed and you, can, you can't see through it anymore. It's cloudy. That's the difference. So the one that's cloudy, that pressed apple juice or the cider, that's what turbid means compared to an apple juice that you would get that would be completely clear that you can see straight through. Cool. Okay. That's awesome. Wow. What a fun activity. I love this. Um, <laughs> so um, okay, so do you have any resources that would be books or um, websites or papers or anything on this topic that listeners could go deeper on this topic and look at? To start with, if people are, are new to Extreme Files, there are some great websites to start with. Uh, there's one from uh, Carleton College that they did in conjunction with the National Science Foundation um, and on Extreme Files called Microbial Life Educational Resources. Uh, it's www.serc.carleton.edu, and that's a great introduction to all the different kinds of extremophiles. If you want to take a look more at high-temperature life, you can look at the uh, Yellowstone National Park website, and they have a section uh, called uh, Life in Extreme Heat, and it talks all about the thermophiles and the ones you can find at, at Yellowstone, and even how that relates to the search for life on Mars, and relating back to Perseverance rover that just landed. For those that are wanted to look more at halophiles and radiation-resistant microorganisms, uh, the Microbiology Society made a magazine called Micro, uh, Microbiology Today, and they had an issue called The Real Superheroes, and they looked specifically at halophiles and radiation-resistant uh, microorganisms. And those are good places for people to start if they're looking at different kinds of extremophiles. That is awesome. And I will link to all of those in the show notes. Um, so that will, those are some really great resources. Thank you. Well, Thank you so much, Adrian, for coming on the Joyful Micro podcast. Um, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you, follow you, and connect with you? Absolutely. So they can find me um, just looking at my, uh, my university website. It is one place. I am at the Museum National d'Histoire Naturelle, the National Museum of Natural History in Paris, France. You can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Dr. Adrian Kish. Okay. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Joyful Microbe podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you feel so inclined, it would mean a lot to me if you took the time to rate the show and write a review. 
To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you can find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned, as well as that awesome activity that we talked about. And if you like what I do, you can also find on the website a link to support me on coffee. If you'd like to connect on social media, you can find me on Twitter at Joyful Microbe and on Instagram at Justine LDs. Thanks again, Microbe friends. Talk to you next time.